you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Jeshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and the Mira, that belongs to the Sidonians, to Afek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Jebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mizrapoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. I mentioned so wonderful uh, to be with you. Uh, normally on Sundays, as I said, I'm uh, with the kids all day, except when they're in City Kids. Praise the Lord for City Kids. Um, I, uh, it's been wonderful. Um, in fact, can we have a round of applause for our City Kids volunteers right now? All over, yeah. I just think they do such an amazing job. Um, genuinely, one of the great prayers I have, my wife and I have for our two kids, Josh and Chloe, is that they'll grow up knowing the Lord, fearing the Lord, loving the Lord their whole lives. And um, for a while there, uh, Chloe would tell me, I love Satan, Daddy, because, um, you know, she's a minister's kid. Um, she's three, by the way. Um, but uh, we were praying for that, and the city, I mean, the city kids people have just been loving her, investing her, and recently she said, do you know what, Daddy, I don't love you the most. I love Jesus the most. And I thought, that's wonderful. And she said, oh, because he made me. Oh, that's wonderful, darling. Well, Jesus can make you breakfast then. No, so, I mean, it was a wonderful thing to hear from, from my daughter, and I do love her very much, and I'm grateful for all the people who invest in her. Um, now, I'm not meant to be talking about that. I'm meant to be talking about uh, the book of Joshua, which is such a fantastic series to be in. I'm, I'm not just because I'm an Old Testament lecturer. I'd love that we teach the whole Bible, even the, I mean, I can't really say the boring bits, can I? But chapters 13 to 22, uh, it's, it's a challenging thing to read and to understand. And I'm, I'm hoping that by the end of today, you'll agree with me that this is actually the key to understanding the message of Joshua. These apparently boring lists of places, this sort of like audio book version of the street directory, is actually the key to understanding the book of Joshua and its relevance for us. I know it's a big call, but I'm gonna give it a go. Uh, The book of Joshua, I've got a, a, a graphic for the book of Joshua to show you the structure of the book of Joshua. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Philip. Uh, we're a team, Philip and I, we met this morning. We are working together, it's excellent. Uh, It comes in four parts. 
There's four parts of the book of Joshua. We've got the, the story of them preparing to cross into the land. Then we have the kind of exciting military stories in chapter 6 to 12, in that second section, uh, where you have the Battle of Jericho and Ai and all the other places, the famous ones. But then chapters 13 to 21 changes gear a little bit. All right, so we've just come to the end last week. Uh, I, I listened to uh, Dave Chiswell's sermon from last week uh, as I was driving here. Cracker of a sermon, go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it. Uh, at the end of this section, the conquering section, they're really at a high point. They've achieved all they set out to achieve. Uh, Joshua eleven twenty three. Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So we've come to the point where all the promises that God has given of this land have been given through Joshua to the people of Israel, and yet we're not at the end of the book. What remains from chapters 13 onwards are some details. We have the the land divided between the tribes, particularly the nine and a half tribes who are on the uh, west of the Jordan uh, River. And this is really like... um, uh, kind of a realestate.com kind of journey through, and in that it's not really interesting to you unless it's your apartment or your house that's being talked about. Um, I don't know if you've got friends who are kind of searching for a rental property right now, but they're very dull people to be with. I know that because when we moved to Melbourne, we spent a long time trying to find a place to live. Um, and every time we met up with our friends, there was a reference to realestate.com, what we're looking at. Extremely dull dinner party conversations. In fact, my wife, uh, this is a true story, my wife actually got an email the very first year we moved to Melbourne. Uh, This was maybe six years ago. She got an email from realestate.com congratulating her on being in the top 2% of Australian realestate.com users, having spent, and they listed how, I mean, this was a terrible marketing strategy because they listed how many hours she had spent on their app trying to find us a house, how many properties she'd viewed, how many uh, you know, applications she tried to send out just to get a, um, a place to live in Melbourne. Anyway, it's very dull unless it's your land. Okay, unless it's your, the, it's like watching someone else open Christmas presents. It's dull only because we don't feel the connection to it. But when you realize they're being allocated their future, they've been given their, their future, their hope, their, the place they're going to raise their kids, and these places may not be familiar to us, but they're, they're hugely important for the people who come later, because that's explaining how they got to be where they are. So we have the land divided, all the tribes get their um, pocket. Imagine uh, coming to Melbourne and being, you guys are going to live in Geelong, and and you're the winners (laughs) in that regard, aren't you? It's a beautiful place. If you understand the place, it feels much more of a connection. But we also get um, a couple of other things. Uh, The cities of refuge. This is very important. If you accidentally kill someone, God makes a place where you can go and you won't be followed by the relatives of the person you've accidentally killed a place for justice, a place for moderated vengeance. But we also get this description of the work that remains, the land that has not been conquered yet. And that's the focus, that's the heart of chapter 13 to 22 in this audiobook, Street Directory. It's the land that's not yet theirs. And I want to suggest that's the heart of the story. So I've got two things I want to talk about. Firstly, the work to be done. Secondly, the obedience that will be required. So firstly, the work to be done. Um, I've got a map of it, which might just help um, kind of understand 
what we're, what we're dealing with here. That is the promised land. That's the tribal allotments. It's probably too small to read them, but just the general vibe you get um, is, is this from chapter 13. When it describes the boundaries where the Canaanites still are, it's talking about that region down in the southwest, right? That's where the Philistines are, you know, when like David and Goliath and that kind of stuff is going on later in the story. That's where the Philistines live in the southwest. And also in the, in the north, up towards Lebanon, right, in the mountainous region there, that's the other kind of sections that remain. And it'd be a wonderful thing to have an atlas open as you read through this, maybe in gospel communities, uh, to actually be able to like, look at these places and understand. What they're essentially saying is, in the promised land, there's a whole lot of people still there who are not Israelite. Right, there's these big regions in the southwest and in the northwest towards the Mediterranean Sea where they don't yet have control. God's people are not yet in control of the land. They're still Canaanite or Philistine strongholds. Why is this important? Why is the land so important to God's promises at this stage in the story? Because that's the other thing we need to get. The fact that they don't have control of the land is very significant because God promised that they would have the whole land. It all goes back to the story in the beginning. Adam and Eve. Heard of them? Adam and Eve. They uh, made a decision to uh, disbelieve, to disrespect, to disobey God And that kind of opened the door to a a world of sin. They opened the door. You and I, friends, we walked through it. In fact, every generation since then has decided to follow in that noble tradition of disobeying God. Now, at that point, having been given this amazing privilege of being God's rulers in this world, having been showered with the blessings of of a fertile and fruitful world, God could have just walked away from us at that point, given up at us. I said, well, look, stuff those humans... I'm going to take the world away from them and give it to the dolphins, right? See if they do any better. He could have done that. In fact, that would have been better than we deserve. But instead, he actually decides to commit to the creation story. The world descends further and further into violence, and at every generation, we're thinking as we read the story, surely this is the last straw for God. Right, when Cain kills Abel, or when Lamech boasts about how murderous he is, or when the sons of Noah proceed to get off the boat and then prove that sin survived the boat ride. But at every point, God could have given up, and yet there's this tension because God will not tolerate evil. He is a holy God. We heard that last week from Dave. And yet, he will not walk away from the creation. So there's a tension between God's justice and his mercy. He can't say sin's okay, because it's not. And yet, he will not walk away. There's a, there's a, I mean, it's a game of chicken, really, between us and God, because we're, we will not come back to God, and yet God will not let sin have the final word. So what's going to happen? And here's what happens. God takes one line of that family, one descendant, of Noah, and chooses to start something new with him, with Abraham. And it doesn't seem like much, but it's actually the turning point in the entire story. As sin gets worse and worse and worse, he chooses this one family and makes a promise, a covenant. He promises that from that family there will come a great nation who will one day live in God's land in God's presence, receiving God's blessings and responding in obedience. We call that 
Some people like to think of this as a bit of a triangle. I've never got a graphic of this triangle, so I find it kind of helpful. This family will end up essentially back in the same situation they were in Eden. God and his people together in the land, receiving all the blessings of God's presence and responding in obedience. And that's why the land is so important in the book of Joshua. Because this is the place where those blessings will be showered back upon his people, where they will be safe from violence, where they'll be prosperous, where there'll be God with them. Now, of course, you can't just live with God and do whatever you want. We need to deal with our sin. We need to deal with the fact that we are not holy and He is. And so there will be a special way made for us to live with God. We have to be obedient to Him. But the future vision is God and His people in the land. So far, they haven't been in the land. They've been everywhere else but the land. They've been in Egypt, they've been wandering around, but now they're going to be back in the land. There was a bit of a hiccup with the wandering around in the desert thing. And finally, Joshua brings them in. So it's so crucial that the land is theirs because this is the core of the promise to Abraham. So where are we on this kind of journey to receiving this promise, to seeing this covenant fulfilled? Well, by the end of this section... Joshua 21, 43, we hear that the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. That's to Abraham. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given them all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. So we see in the book of Joshua the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, which we're not surprised by because we know God keeps his promises. But the reason we know God is faithful is because of this story. Because we've seen it happen. Think of anyone you trust. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's your partner, maybe it's a friend. You trust them, why? Well, probably because you know them. You've experienced them. Through time and struggles, through challenges and hardship, they have been faithful to you. I trust my wife, not because she told me on our first date, I'm a trustworthy person. Oh, okay. Because we've been married for 11 years. I've seen that. I know her. And it's the same with God. We know he can be trusted because he always has kept his promises and always will. He's not going to start letting people down with you. He's not going to start with you. He's not going to start being different. He's not going to stop being faithful. At the same time, God has kept his promises. He's given this land over. We do see in the book of Joshua, though, that there is a flip side. Because at the same time as all the promises have come good, the Bible is also clear that they have not yet taken possession of all that is promised. It's a tension in the book of Joshua. And that's why I say these chapters are actually the heart of the book. On the one hand, there's been some incredible, miraculous victories. Think about Jericho. You sent a bunch of priests to take a city. I've been to the Anglican Synod. I know what a room full of priests look like, and I'm not taking them anywhere near a battle. And yet they go in, 
and the walls fall down. Why? Because God promised. We have these incredible victories in chapter 6 to 12, but then in 13 to 22, we also learn that there is much more to be done. There is work that remains. And that's why in Joshua chapter 13, our first verse of today, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. So which is it? Are all the promises come good, or is there much more land to possess? That's the tension of Joshua, and the answer is both. The answer is both. God has brought them as he promised to this point. But this is not the end of the story. There's much work to be done. For instance, as we saw on that map before, the Philistines still live in the land. They will need to trust in God to protect them against them in the western side near the sea. Jerusalem, funny story, is actually not an Israelite town yet. Jerusalem, that's a pretty important city. It's a Jebusite town and will be until much, much later. There are still Canaanites living in Ephraim and West Manasseh. Now, they're living there, they're being used as forced labor. And this helps us to, I think, understand a little bit of the language we read in the 6 to 12 chapters, where it just talked about utterly destroying every living thing that breathed. You know that extreme language that we find quite uncomfortable in chapter 6 to 12? Well, the fact that Joshua... You know, just, uh, um, he, he captured the entire land, the whole land, chapter 10 tells us, and left no survivors. Now, it's helpful for us to read the whole book before we work out what that means, right? Because this extreme language is actually a reflection of the genre of conquest account. Okay, that's a really helpful thing to understand. This is describing a definitive military victory. It's a bit like in the sports section, where it talks about how Geelong decimated Collingwood. All right. Now, you may imagine reading that, that what they did was line up the players and, and execute Roman-style one in ten. Right? You, you might like that picture, I don't know. I don't want to judge you for that. But that's not what, I mean, what does it mean? When, I mean, in the genre of sports report, it means a decisive victory, doesn't it? And so we have to understand, chapter 6 to 12 is, is telling the truth, but it's telling the truth about a decisive military victory at all these points against the infrastructure and the military targets which have control of the land. And a decisive victory is described in the culturally appropriate form of the conquest report. And it explains why there is still land to be taken in chapter 13, therefore. Right? If they completely destroyed everything that lived in the whole land, why do we have chapter 13 to 22 telling us the land that hasn't been conquered yet? Why do we have commands in chapter 23 to not intermarry with the Canaanites? If they're all dead, who are they not intermarrying with? You see what I mean? Why is um, Hebron and Debir, two cities, will be described in this section as being captured by Caleb in Joshua 15? But they were already defeated and utterly destroyed back in chapter 11. See what I mean? We need to understand the whole two sections together. What it means, what it's telling us is there were definitive victories which got control of the land. Key military targets were taken out. And the infrastructure, a friend of mine puts it like this, the infrastructure of toxic idolatry was removed. And yet there will still be need for faithfulness to come. They'll still need to resist the pull 
of the Canaanites. And so that's the second thing I want to observe. You obey, you get to stay. Very simple principle from the Bible, from the Old Testament. You obey, you stay in the land. You disobey, and you're gone. That is the core principle which drives the Old Testament narrative onwards. And that is the principle that they will confront. Um, Joshua talks about this. God talks about this in chapter 22 at the end of this section. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. What commandment? To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him. I love that image. Cling to God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. This reflects um, Deuteronomy chapter 8 when Moses said the same thing. Be careful to follow every command that I'm giving you. Why? So that you may live in the land for a long time and increase and enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. And here's the thing. Moses spells out the opposite principle, the flip side. If you ever forget, says Moses, if you ever forget the Lord and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. You obey, you get to stay. And this is so important for us to see because it it highlights that the conquest was never about God loving some races more than others. He just likes the Israelites more and he doesn't like Canaanites. No, God is impartial in his judgment. The same punishment that befell the Canaanites will come to them if they disobey. It also signals that victory is not because of the superiority of the Israelites. Just imagine those priests going around the city. It's not because they're stronger. It's not because they're more tactically kind of clever. It's not their superior weapons. In fact, quite the opposite. It's driven by God's covenant, and God's covenant is underwritten by two things, God's mercy and his justice. Firstly, by his justice, because God has kicked the Canaanites out of the land because he has judged them, because he has found them to be unjust, and he has no tolerance for sin. God has no tolerance for sin and idolatry. Idolatry is worshipping the wrong God in the wrong way or even the right God in the wrong way. Point is, you only approach God on his terms and they had not. But it's also underwritten by his mercy because God's covenant to Abraham was never just about this one family. It was always about the whole world being blessed through them. The whole world would be brought back to worshipping God through this one family. It's a bit like a pilot light. I think of like a pilot light. I found out what a pilot light was when my hot water stopped working one morning. You know this in your gas hot water? Anyone, I mean, am I talking right? You know what I'm talking about. You have a gas, you have hot water. Yeah? You hope you have hot water. And the reason you have that in a gas system, you have this tiny little light. Now it is a tiny little light, a tiny little flame. You couldn't hit, couldn't hit a bath for an ant with that tiny little flame. And yet that pilot light is what gives you your 
your fire in the morning for your hot water. If that pilot light goes out, then you're, you're having a cold shower, friends. I don't know how to tell you. And Israel is like a pilot light for the whole world. The flame that keeps going in this family will one day be the whole world brought back to worshiping God. That's the plan. And if that light goes out at this point, if they stop worshiping God, if they fall into the idolatry of the Canaanites, if they pick up their bad habits and their creative worship, creative worship is not a good thing, friends. Throughout the Bible, God is very clear. He's not into creative worship. Do you know what their creative worship was in Canaan? Child sacrifice. Maybe God will like this. No, he doesn't. Worshipping the wrong God or the right God in the wrong way, that kind of creative... I'm not talking about the musicians. Come on, they're great. God loves that. But the other type of creative worship where you're just making it up, idolatry, God has no tolerance for that. And so if that pilot light of Israel goes out at this point, the world is stuffed. The plan is off. They cannot afford to make peace with sin and idolatry. At this point, the descendants of Abraham cannot afford to fall into the practices of the Canaanites because what you tolerate, you become. What you make peace with, becomes your way of living very quickly. And it's too important for that. The, the hope of the world rides on this family. We, um, in, in, in our culture, tend to emphasize the, the, the quick fix, the immediate victory, the stunning conversion. But actually what we learn uh, from the Bible is that Lasting victory requires long-term obedience. I love that phrase, is it Eugene Peterson, who talks about Christian discipleship as long obedience in the same direction. That's less dramatic than an incredible conversion story and a baptism, though we celebrate that, don't we? We celebrate that, but do you know what's even more worth celebrating is long obedience in the same direction because that's the Christian life. And that's what these people are being called to as well. You obey, you get to stay. And I think this is really helpful too when, uh, look, the elephant in the room in these passages is the use of force. It's confronting for us, isn't it? The, the, the violence, the fact that we have here God on the battlefield. What do we do with the use of force in the book of Joshua? Even though we've uh, clarified that we're not talking about genocide, we're not talking about wholesale deliberate targeting of civilians, we're not talking about um, lit what, literally kind of <laughs> decimating the land or anything like that, it is key strategic victories, offensive and some defensive victories against military targets, yes, but it does confront us still because we know civilians would have been driven out. Some of them would have been killed. The people will be dispossessed by force. And I find that confronting. And I'm an Old Testament lecturer. Like, this is my job every, every week. And just to be honest with you, I do find this uncomfortable. And you know why I find this uncomfortable? Because it's just not my world. It's not my world. I've never been to an active conflict zone. I, I try not to. And it's hard for me to imagine 
living in a time of constant tribal warfare, where there weren't just, these are professional soldiers, right? This is just a fact of life for most of the humans who've ever lived, that every year, for a bit of the year, your sons, your brothers, your dad, and you will have to go and fight for the survival of your family. And if you don't, you'll all be killed. It's not my world. And so it is confronting to learn that God is on the battlefield, just as he is everywhere. What do we do with this? Well, to be honest, if I had a naturalistic worldview, in other words, if I just didn't think God was real, this might not trouble me because that's just the way the world is. Right? Humans fight, there's violence, survival of the fittest. But because I know God, that's why I find it confronting, actually. Because I know that God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. In fact, I know God is anti-death. God is anti-violence. We knew that back in the flood. What was it that inspired, that set the stage for the flood and the story of Noah? It was God grieving the world had been given over to wickedness and violence. So we know what God is like, and so when we see him on the battlefield, we go, God, is that you? Really? Here's what I think is very important, though. A few observations I offer that I find helpful for trying to get my head inside what's going on here in the use of force. Firstly, we're talking about limited and targeted use of force, not wholesale permission, license to kill. Okay? There are seven nations that have specified as having lost their right to stay in the land. This is very clear from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7 lists the nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Right? So it's not that Israel just gets to kill whoever they want. Right? These are seven named nations who God has delivered over to them. Uh, these, uh, who are they? Well, actually, they're, they're kind of relatives. You know this? They're actually relatives of the Israelites. When Noah came off the boat, he had, th- he had three kids with him, three sons. He had Shem, Japheth, and the third, Ham. Now, Shem is the father of the Shemites, the Semites, the Israelites. Okay? So that's the family of promise, the, 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 family, the family line that Israel comes from. But Ham is the father, great-great-great-grandfather, of the Canaanites. So this is an inter-family, inter-God's family kind of struggle here. What have they done? Why are they the target of this force? Why? It's unusual for God not to show any mercy. So why is God showing them no mercy? Well, that's the second thing. First thing is it's targeted and limited. Secondly, the use of force is God's exercising his judgment, which is his right. In fact, it's part of what being God is. Now, some reject this, by the way, some think that God is non-violent, right? that he is all about love, which is true, and therefore it is just against the view that we have of Jesus and God in the New Testament to see God using force, judging the world. And so on that basis, some people actually just throw away the Old Testament. But I want to say, actually, that's not doing justice to the New Testament picture of God either. Because yes, God is a God of mercy, he is all the way through the Bible, we wouldn't be here. But God is, I mean, the, the God we meet in Jesus is not only the Prince of Peace, he's also Judge of the world. You can read about that in John chapter 5, verse 27. He is the one who will judge the world. That's his job. 
He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but also he cannot tolerate sin. And that's why the, the key word used in this passage is harem. I'm allowed one Hebrew word per sermon, contractually. I'm going to use it on this one. Harem. Because it's not holy war that they're called to here. That's a later Islamic idea. It's harem, which is handed over to God. It's devoted to destruction. And it's not just in war that this happens. Right? Um, in Exodus chapter 22, whoever sacrifices in your community, whoever sacrifices to a false god must be harem. Right? It's a punishment. It's God's judgment. And so when God says that they haremed, they devoted to destruction the city in Joshua 6, or later in Joshua 6 to 12, it's talking about God's judgment being brought forward on these people for a reason. And normally because of their idolatry. Um, we know this right actually back from the beginning of the story. In Genesis 15, when God made this promise to Abraham, he said, you know what, you're going to get this land, but not yet. Why? Why can't Abraham just go in? Because the sin of the Amorites, Genesis 15, has not yet reached its fullness. In other words, God is going to wait. He's going to wait until they deserve to lose the land. This helps us to understand what's going on, why the underdog armed with a few priests is going to win a battle against a heavily fortified city. It also helps us understand why, uh, it, earlier in the story, Achan, who is an Israelite, will end up being haremed, but Rahab, who's a Canaanite, will survive. It's not about racism. It's not about being on the right side of the battle. It's about whether you worship God. In fact, when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army, he asks him, hey, are you on our side? What does he say? <laughs> I'm not on your side or their side. God isn't on your side. The question is, are you on God's side? So we learn in the book of Joshua that it's all about God's measured, last resort punishment in response to wickedness. I love where it says in Jeremiah that God has tears. Do you know this? God sheds tears. What, what's the, when does God shed tears? It's over, over. It's over the wicked. The wicked who cannot be brought back and so must be destroyed. Force is only ever a last resort. And the third thing to observe, it's God's judgment and it's necessary now to protect God's pilot light for the sake of the whole world. Why bring judgment forward on these nations in particular? Right? God's letting all sorts of other nations get on with it. Why must these nations being brought for, have their judgment brought forward? It's because he must destroy the influence of toxic idolatry around Israel. He must ensure that they don't become like the Canaanites, or the whole project is off. Make peace with sin, and you will soon be a sinner. Tolerate idolatry, and that is what you'll become. And sadly, actually, at the end of the story, in the book of Judges, that's exactly what happens. But for now, we know the violence is not the end of the story, and this is not the goal. The goal is actually to restore the whole world. 
which got me thinking on the way here, what does that mean for us? All right, we're at the end of the story. Right? Spoilers, Jesus comes. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, I think there's two things that are very similar in our situation. Obviously, it's different. But two things are very similar. And the first is, we have work to be done too. The whole world belongs to Jesus. And yet, we long for a world that knows that. I love that we have set out from this church, actually, people on mission to spread the news of Jesus around the world. People who are going to other parts of the world to spread the news of Jesus. Victory is ours, but the world doesn't yet know that good news. But I think there's also a message about obedience here. I don't just want to make this about victory out there. There's also a message of obedience, and I know that it's different for us. I know that in Jesus, he obeyed like no other human, and so we enter God's promised rest on his merits, not ours. But our struggle is not against flesh of blood, says Paul in Ephesians 6, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Bible uses military metaphors, I think, because it, it talks about the sacrifice, the preparation, the strategy, the discipline that we need in the long obedience in one direction. So friends, I want to encourage you this morning to survey the promised land of your life, if I can stretch the metaphor. Where are the Canaanite strongholds in your world? I don't mean out there, I mean in here. Where are the Canaanite cities, the strongholds of the spiritual forces you need to deal with? Because Paul also says you need to put to death. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Where are your Hittites and Girgashites and Amorites and Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites hanging out? We know that uh, greed is idolatry and I know that my wallet is probably going to be the last part of my body to be converted. All right, that's what they say, the last part of a person to be converted is their wallet. Because greed, which is idolatry, which gives us illusions of security and power and influence, and safety and rest that come from outside of God, where my money goes is telling. So I don't need to play World of Warcraft because when Steph comes home and I'm on my computer and she asks me, what are you doing? I can say truthfully that I am slaying some Hittites using my internet banking. I'm serious. Because when you give... I don't just mean to the church, though that's a good place to start. I mean anywhere, to any good cause in the world. When you give, you practice slaying Hittites, that stronghold of money and greed in my heart. Just put some arrows off, send 500 bucks to Anglicare, see how that feels, Hittites. Because it does, it practices. It practices taking hold of that part of my life for God. Or maybe maybe your uh, romantic life is run by the Amorites, Maybe that's one area of your life where you get to decide, not God. And I want to say God's word to that is, it belongs to him. Or maybe your anger, like mine, shows 
deeply frustrated desires of an earthly nature being frustrated, and that's why I get so cranky. Not because of justice, injustice in the world, but because minor slights to my identity, which is not built on Christ. Or maybe we haven't yet worked out, maybe you haven't worked out, what it means for Jesus to be the king of one aspect of you, your professional life, say. You just haven't worked out what that means. Maybe there are certain friendships who bring out a side of me that has not been yielded to the Lord. And so I want to lead this in prayer now that God would expose where the Gergeshites are living. For our good, because it's not good to make peace with sin, ever. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have redeemed us from a life of slavery to sin and to evil, and you want what is good for us and for your glory, that is that we should be free from sin and the whole of our lives yielded to the lordship, the kingship of Christ. And I pray you would help expose, as painful as that may be, where are the strongholds of our former selves that we have not yielded. And we ask that you would do it gently, but you would do it firmly for our good and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.